Well, I failed to mention uh, earlier during announcements that we do have tickets for the Christmas concert, and they're on the back tables, so if you want to grab a handful of these and start handing them out to people, inviting them to come, and uh, it's really well done, so I encourage you to grab some as you leave today. Well, I'm not sure uh, how many of you were here last Sunday. We never know who's in and out of town the Sunday before Thanksgiving, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, because people travel. And so, uh, but I say all that because if you missed last Sunday, I want to highly commend to you the message by Derek Bass, uh, one of our missionaries that we support, was here. And he preached a a great message called uh, The Song by the Sea an exposition of uh, Exodus 15, and it was really a a great reminder that we basically have a choice to make in life, and that is we can either grumble or we can worship, and uh, that God intended us to to sing our way to the New Jerusalem. And uh, so if you weren't here, I would recommend you go online and listen to that message. I think you'll be encouraged. I know a lot of you are going through difficult seasons right now in your life, and I thought uh, that was very applicable to, to many of us. Uh, last uh, last Sunday, but um, and and before we get back into our study of Second Peter again, not knowing who was going to be here and who wasn't going to be here, I don't like to press on uh, in our book study if I don't know everybody's going to be here. But I was thinking about a passage based on our last time together in Second Peter, where we looked at Second Peter chapter one verses sixteen through twenty one about the uh, surety of God's word, and we learned that uh, the Bible is not uh, a book of man-made stories, but it is uh, a book that was written by God himself. Uh, Men were moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote down exactly what God wanted them to write, and so it's a sure word, even more sure than the experience that Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the glory of Christ with his own eyes, he heard the audible voice of God from heaven, and he says, hey, you know what? You got something even more sure than that, and that's this thing right here. And so one of the passages that uh, I thought of as I was studying that and teaching that two weeks ago was Psalm 19. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn them uh, to Psalm 19 with me this morning. And uh, I want to look at verses 7 through 11, And this is one of the premier passages in the Bible about the Bible. And so let's read this together, and I'll pray, and we'll talk about it. Psalm 19, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Father, we have so much to be thankful for. We've been thinking about that, talking about that this past week, but we are so grateful for this book that we hold in our hands, that sits on our lap, 
And we're grateful that we have the confidence um, that it is your word. And you've granted us the faith to believe that it is your word, not a book written by men, um, but Lord, a book written by your spirit and using men to write down what you wanted us to know so we could be who you want us to be. So as we look again at your word, and particularly at this passage that talks about your word and the nature of your word, the character of your word, the effect and the power of your word, that we would have a higher view of your word than perhaps we already have. And uh, Lord, that we would um, never take your word for granted, but cherish it as our most prized possession. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everybody hold up your Bibles. Go ahead, hold them up. Yeah, I knew there was going to be a few phones, a few iPads. But uh, do you realize you are holding your most prized possession? This is the most important thing that you will ever own. Nothing is more indispensable to your life, to my life, than the book that we have in front of us. Listen to this anonymous description of the essential, critical nature of God's word that was found on the wall of a pastor's study. It's a lengthy quote, and in fact, I put it on the back side of your notes there, and so it's on the back side of the sermon sheet if you want to follow along as I read it. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, heaven is open, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth and health to the soul and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemns all who trifle with its contents. I think that's such an excellent description of the multifaceted ministry and comprehensive nature of God's word. The Bible contains everything we need to know to live a life that is pleasing to God. And when you think about the Psalms that talk about the Bible, you just need to remember Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, and I think it's no mystery that it's all about the Bible. And it's that the psalmist is, is meditating on the wonders of God's word. And all 176 verses mention something about the word of God. And it's composed in the form of an, an acrostic, uh, 22 sections, each corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I think that was the psalmist's way of saying simply that the Bible is comprehensive 
from A to Z. It covers all the bases. Well, that's Psalm 119. We don't have time to look at that in its entirety this morning, but we don't have to because here in Psalm 19, um, in an eloquent economy of words, just five verses, David concisely described the all-encompassing character of God's word. And like the master poet that he was under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, David threw out descriptive titles and adjectives in an attempt to, to put into words the wonderful characteristics and benefits of the written revelation of God. Someone said this, that this is the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. John MacArthur, in a very helpful book he wrote years ago called Our Sufficiency in Christ, said this about Psalm 19, 7 through 11. He said, it's the most monumental statement on the sufficiency of Scripture ever made in concise terms. It offers an unwavering testimony from God himself about the sufficiency of his word for every situation. The Holy Spirit gives a comprehensive catalog of the characteristics and the benefits of Scripture. So we're really just kind of parachuting down in the middle of this psalm, and you need to know that this psalm is all about God's revelation, and God's revelation comes to us in two ways. It comes to us generally through creation, and it also comes to us in a special way through the canon or through the Word of God. And so David here in verses 1 through 6 uh, talks about how God has revealed himself through his works through creation, and then verses 7 through 11, we see how God uh, reveals himself uh, through his word. Um, so what, what we're going to see here in verses 7 through 11 is, is six statements describing God's word that should inspire three responses to God's word. So six statements describing God's word that should inspire three responses to God's word. And each of these statements includes three elements. There's a name for the word of God, a characteristic of the word of God, and there's a benefit or an effect of the word of God. So we're going to see six names for God's word, six characteristics for God's words or of God's words, and six benefits or effects of God's word. And together they form a summary of what the Bible is and what the Bible does. So let's look first of all at number one, this is the first statement, and that is the Bible is perfect and produces conversion. The Bible is perfect and produces conversion. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. That phrase there, the law of the Lord, is the general Hebrew word for uh, or used to define scriptures, the word Torah or Torah, which means instruction or direction or teaching. And this was a comprehensive term for all of God's revealed will. And so we find in God's word, uh, first of all, our, our creed, what we should believe, uh, our character, who we should be, and thirdly, our contact, what we should do. And so the scripture reveals all three of these things, and it's perfect, it's, it's whole, it's complete, it's sufficient. It completely covers every aspect of life. It's, it, it's, it's not deficient in any way. The Bible has everything we need in it to live a godly life. If something is necessary for life, it will be in the Bible. And so consequently, it doesn't need to be changed or supplemented or integrated with anything else. 
It is totally sufficient in and of itself. And that's why we're forbidden to add anything to it or take anything away from it or alter it in any way. Moses said that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. In chapter 12, verse 32, John said it in Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19. Do not add or take anything away from Scripture. And the reason why we shouldn't do that or don't need to do that, it's already perfect just the way it is. And so there's no need for additional revelations or visions or words from the Lord. And I was making that point two weeks ago, and I know it maybe took some of you by surprise in how strong I was in, 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 in making those statements. But my point was simply this, that, that, that we have all we need right here. And, and instead of looking for something more from God, we should focus on obeying what we already have. And we, when we do that, it will totally transform our lives. And that's what I think that next phrase, restoring the soul, means. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. This is the word for conversion or to revive or to give new life or the word that we would, uh, theologians refer to as regeneration, bringing us uh, from death to life. And so it has the power, God's word has the power to completely change people from the inside out. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so no matter what our life is like, regardless of how bad our sins are or how big our problems are, the Bible is able to convert us and revive us and renovate us and rebuild our lives. This is what God uses to regenerate us, to cause us to be born again. 1 Peter 1.23 says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Someone said it this way, Scripture is so powerful and comprehensive that it can convert or transform the entire person, changing someone into precisely the person God wants them to be. God's word is sufficient to restore through salvation even the most broken life. And so first of all, the Bible is perfect and produces conversion. Secondly, The Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. The Bible is trustworthy and provides instruction. Look at the second half of verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. When we talk about a testimony, a testimony is an aspect of truth that's attested to by someone. It's a, you're, you're serving as a witness, and so God is saying that his word is attesting to him uh, that he exists, that he's there. Uh, So in other words, God's word is a divine witness. And so scripture serves as God's witness to us of who he is, what he's done, what he wants us to do, what he wants us to be. And that word testimony is how the Ten Commandments were known uh, in Exodus 25, verse 21, when God was giving the nation of Israel instructions to how to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, he said this in Exodus 25, 21, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And he was referring to the two tablets uh, of the, the Ten Commandments. But notice he says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. If you have an NIV, the word they use to translate this is trustworthy. In other words, that the Bible is worthy of our trust. It's able to be trusted. It's reliable. 
It provides an unwavering, immovable foundation on which to build our lives and our eternal destinies. I don't know how many of you did the homework that I gave a couple weeks ago. I said, go home and dig out your copy of our doctrinal statement, go online and read our doctrinal statement, look at the section on the Bible and what we say about the Bible. And one of the phrases that we include in our doctrinal statement, you'll find this in a lot of orthodox doctrinal statements, and this is the line, the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of faith and practice. The Bible is the only trustworthy standard of faith and practice. In other words, the Bible is the only trustworthy standard of what we believe and how we should live our lives. And we learned two weeks ago, according to Peter, 2 Peter 1, verse 16, that this book is more sure than any kind of experience you might ever have, even if you saw with your own eyes Jesus or heard God's voice with your own ears. That this is a more powerful, more authoritative, more trustworthy source of, of, of what to do and, and how we should live our lives. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That word simple comes from the word meaning open door. And the idea here is, and David is talking about someone who doesn't know how or when to shut the door of their mind to false teaching. In other words, they're a simple person, is undiscerning or gullible or ignorant. And so the Bible helps a person like this to be able to discern truth from error so they, can, they know what to receive and what to reject. It gives them wisdom to differentiate between what is harmful, what is helpful. And we know wisdom is, is more than just a bunch of information, but it's being able to apply what you know from God's word to the everyday issues and circumstances of your life. Wisdom is being skilled in the art of godly living. And so it's not enough just to have some verse memorized. That means you know it, but wisdom is you know how to apply it when something comes up uh, in your marriage or something comes up with your children or something comes up at the workplace or in your neighborhood or with your finances. You know how to apply the, the principle in that verse to that situation. And the good part of this is, is every aspect of life is talked about in the Bible. I mean, you name a subject and it's there, maybe not directly addressed, but there are principles that apply to every issue, every decision that we need to face in life. So the scriptures provide us with principles for successful living. Those who follow these principles will become wise and ultimately be led to salvation. I love how uh, Paul talked to Timothy about uh, his relationship to the word of God in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. On the contrary, those who reject God's word prove themselves to be fools. Romans 1 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about that. The point is simply this, that the word of God takes a simple mind with no discernment and makes it skilled in all the issues of life. Number three, the Bible is right and produces jubilation. The Bible is right and produces jubilation. Look at verse eight. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So precepts are, is a word for specific authoritative orders given to us by God, or the NIV translates it statutes. These are detailed instructions 
concerning the practical matters of everyday life. If you were a Jew, right, you, the Bible, the law told you exactly what to eat, what to wear, how to keep clean. Um, and these were all things that, according to David here, are right. The precepts of the Lord are right. And, and this doesn't necessarily mean as opposed to wrong, right? That they're correct as opposed to what is incorrect. I think the idea here is what is straight as opposed to something that's crooked. And so it's linked to the idea of righteousness here, that it is, that it is a straight and narrow path on, of righteousness on which we're to walk. In other words, God's word clearly lays out the path uh, for us to walk in life. Uh, there's no need for a lack of direction or purpose like so many do uh, or have in our world today or say they have because we have God's precepts. And they are right and they, are, they rejoice the heart. In other words, living a righteous life causes us great joy, causes us great happiness. And so as we walk the path that God lays out for us in his word, we experience joy and happiness and and blessing. One of the verses that I will often write next to my name if I sign a copy for someone of the expository listening is Luke 11, 28, which says this, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. It's not enough just to hear it, right? You got to do it. You got to put it into practice. And I think most people in the world today don't realize that it's possible to live a happy, joy-filled life without sin, without alcohol, without drugs, without uh, sex outside of marriage, without hoarding a bunch of material stuff. And so the Bible helps us to avoid all of these paths that so many people travel down in their futile attempt to find happiness in life. The psalmist shows us the, the way to true joy and true happiness. And we know David and, and the other psalmists, they, they always went back to Scripture for help and hope whenever they felt discouraged, whenever they felt depressed. God's Word helped them regain the proper perspective and to consequently regain their joy. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. So the Bible is right and produces jubilation. Number four, the Bible is pure and provides direction. The Bible is pure and provides direction. Verse eight, the uh, second half of verse eight, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord. Because God loves us, he commands us what to do and what not to do. And how we respond to these commands is a matter of life or death. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I love how Moses gives his final charge to this next generation of Jews who were getting ready to go into the promised land before he died and was taken home to be with the Lord in heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days. And then he said it this way in Deuteronomy 32, 
Verse 45, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word, you will prolong your days in the land which you're about to cross the Jordan to possess. I think Moses and David both wanted to remind God's people of the non-optional nature of God's word. In other words, this is not just a book of, of suggestions or good ideas that you can take or leave. It, it, the Bible is filled with commands that are authoritative. They're binding on our lives. And they're pure. Notice he says the commandment of the Lord is pure. Radiant, literally there. The NIV says that. In other words, they give off light making it possible to see clearly where we're going and it keeps us from stumbling in the dark. We referenced two weeks ago, Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? And that's what he goes on to say. He says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, it lights up our lives. It, it guides us. It, it drives away the darkness so that we can see clearly without distortion. It provides clarity when things seem dark and confusing. And things that appear blurry at first come into clear focus when they're looked at through the lens of Scripture. And so the Bible is pure and provides direction. Number five, the Bible is clean and produces expectation. The Bible is clean and produces expectation. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And I think that phrase, the fear of the Lord, really describes the effect that the, the Scriptures produces in those who respond to them. It causes us to have a reverential awe and respect for God. And I think the purpose of the Bible is to put the fear of God in us. And again, we've been learning about the fear of God. It's not so that we're scared of God, like he's up there with a big stick ready to whack us when we get out of line, but it's this, this overwhelming awe of who God is. And, and is in, in the same way that the glory of God is really the summary of all that God is, uh, the fear of God is a summary of all the, all the ways we should respond to him. We should honor him and worship him and obey him and serve him. That's what we mean by the fear of God. Deuteronomy 4.10 says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. So he says the fear of the Lord is clean, it's without deficiency, it's without error, it's without fault, it's without blemish. In other words, the Bible is uncorrupted, undefiled. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. And that's why it's enduring forever. He said the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Pure things don't decay, they last forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That should be familiar if you walk into the doors of our original building over there into our worship center. Uh, we have that verse up on the wall. We thought of what's one verse that we want people to think of when they walk into to God's house where the word of God is going to be preached is, hey, everything else around here is going to fade away someday, but the only thing that's going to last is God's word. 
Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said it this way, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus again said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Listen, the world's truth is relative. It changes from one person's opinion or preference or perception to another person's opinion or perception or preference and and from one generation to the next. Whereas the truth of the Bible is absolute, it's unchanging. Why? Because its source is God who never changes. And so the truth of God doesn't change with the times. It's relevant for every person in every generation. We were watching a movie the other night with our family, and uh, as so many movies today, you have to have a same-sex couple in the, in, in the show, right? And, and one of our kids said, you know, th- th- you know, this is what you have to expect in this day and age. Well, just because the times have changed, right, doesn't mean God's word has changed. It never gets outdated. It never needs to be updated or edited. And like God, it has always been and will always be. Howard Hendricks, who was the beloved um, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, said this, quote, there are only two things that God is going to take off the planet. One is his word and the other is people. What a secret. What a clue to how to invest your life. Spend your life building his word into the life of people. This is the only thing that's going to outlast you. They are the things that will give you a legacy that will last. A great reminder for us. And then finally, the last statement here, statement number six, is the Bible is true and produces consecration. The Bible is true and produces consecration. Look at the second half of verse nine. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So the words, or the word judgment there, the judgments of the Lord, talking about verdicts or decisions of a judge, In other words, God's word judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We saw that already in Hebrews 4.12. And so the Bible is God's standard by which he judges the life and eternal destiny of every person. This is what's going to be opened, right, in the last day to judge our lives. And he says it's true. It's true. In a world full of lies, fake news, right, as the popular expression goes, God's word is the sole source of truth. We can depend on the Bible to help us come to know the truth about everything that really matters. You can't always believe everything you're hearing out there in the world, can you? But you can believe what God has said in his word. And he says it's righteous altogether. In other words, the the Bible produces righteousness in those who embrace its truth. It's designed to cause us to live holy and righteous lives, to live right before God. It's righteous altogether. Now, I want you to just go back, starting in verse 7. Let your eyes just follow the three verses that we've looked at. And I think you'll notice 
that all the words that David used to describe God's word also describe who? God. All the things that we know to be true about God, he's perfect, he's sure, he's right, he's pure, he's clean, he's true, he's righteous, he's enduring. And I think the point is simply this, that God's Word is a reflection of God's character. Psalm 138, verse 2 says, For you have magnified your word according to all your name. So in some ways, you could say that God and his word are one and the same. And our view of God's word reflects our view of God, and our view of God reflects our view of God's word. If you have a high view of God, you're going to have a high view of God's word. And if you have a high view of God's word, then you will also have a high view of God. And David had both. David had a high view of God, and he had a high view of his word. And that's why he prized God's word more than anything else in the world, and he submitted his entire life to it. And notice in the next two verses the response of David to the wonderful word that he just got finished describing. And there's, there's three responses, really, to God's word that David modeled here that, that we should follow his example. Number one, he treasured God's word. He treasured God's word. Notice verse 10 he says, they're more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. So God's word is valuable, and David extolled the value of the scriptures by comparing them to gold. Gold was the most valuable commodity in the ancient world at the time. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, I mentioned that at the beginning of the message, but Psalm 119 mentions this idea of treasuring God's word. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Uh, verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Uh, can you imagine how excited you would be if you won the lottery? Well, guess what? You win the lottery every time you open up God's word. You should be that excited, if not more excited. Uh, verse 72 the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse uh, 127. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, yes, above fine gold. And then uh, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. So does that describe you and you have your quiet time in the morning or in the evening or at lunch break, whatever you spend time in God's word, that it's like you found, like you stumbled on some hidden treasure? You're like, whoa, this is amazing. Look at this stuff. I'm a rich man. I'm a rich woman. So he treasured it, number one. Number two, he tasted it. He tasted it. Notice he says in verse 10, Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so God's word is not just valuable, it's enjoyable. And David extolled the value of the scriptures by comparing them to honey, which to us is like, yeah, whatever. I've got honey and I've got, you know, Twinkies and I've got, 
you know, pie from Thanksgiving leftover, right? You know, you have, sugar is all over the place. We, we live in sugar overload, right? The generation of sugar overload. Well, the sweetest thing you could put, your, put in your mouth in those days was honey. It's like, what are we having for dessert? Honey. That's it. That's what we got. And it's the, it's the sweetest thing we can, we can taste. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And so to David, meditating on the scriptures was a source of great pleasure and great enrichment. And it meant more to him than the sweetest thing in life. This is a silly illustration, but are you more excited about reading your Bible than you are about going home and eating that leftover pie, right? I mean, what really, what gets you most excited, right? Job 23, 12. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, to have an appetite for God's word is a mark of a healthy Christian whose priorities are straight. So he treasured God's word. David treasured God's word. He tasted God's word. And thirdly, he, he trusted God's word. Notice he says in verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so God's word is not just valuable and enjoyable, it's also dependable. He said, God's word warns us against the suicidal seductions of sin and its devastating consequences. And it tips us off to the lies and the errors of the world. And it cautions us against false teachers and false teaching, which, Lord willing, we'll talk about next Sunday in second, back in 2 Peter. It, it alerts us to, to Satan and spiritual warfare. It, 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 it does all of this to keep us from sinning. I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By living according, right, to the principles of God's word. I recommended this over the years, and if you haven't done it yet, today would be a good day to do it. Um, find a, an, an open white page in the front of your Bible and write this in the front of your Bible. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. He says, so moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Obedience brings great blessing. Perhaps temporally, temporal blessing, but definitely spiritual blessing. And I think this is David's way of referring to the peace and the rest and the joy and the happiness that he experienced as he submitted his life to the word of God. Again, John MacArthur in that book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, he said, there is no substitute for submission to scripture. Your spiritual health depends on placing the utmost value on the word of God and obeying it with an eager heart. So, I ask you, ask yourself, do you treasure God's word? Do you taste God's word? Do you trust God's word? And in light of 
David's response to how wonderful God's word is and the wonderful things it does. It's sad to see how so many of us take God's word for granted. We forget that there were people throughout the history of the church who gave up their lives so you could have that book you're holding in your language. And most of us have multiple copies of God's word lying around the house collecting dust, right? We all probably have two or three or more copies and we forget that there are fellow believers in other parts of the world who don't own a copy of the scripture. In fact, some of them have never seen a whole Bible. All they have is scraps and a few pages, a few verses and they kind of swap them out every Sunday and they say, hey, give me your verses. I'm gonna give you my verses. And right, that's, that's how they access the word of God. But those little pieces, those little scraps of paper are their most prized possession. We talk a lot about the Puritans around here. In fact, we watched a, a video series this last summer, this past summer on the Puritans. And my favorite um, book about the Puritans is written by J.I. Packer. It's called A Quest for Godliness. And there's an account in the book that I will never forget reading. And Dr. Thomas Goodwin a Puritan, was describing an episode during his student's day when he was in college, and he went to hear a certain Puritan preacher named Mr. Rogers, and this wasn't the Mr. Rogers that we think about, Mr. Rogers, okay? Um, but this preacher's subject that day was the scriptures, and, his, and in his sermon, he talked to the congregation about their neglect of the Bible, and he, he impersonated God at first, but then he impersonated the people, and, and this is what he, he said, and this is when he was impersonating God. He says, I have entrusted you so long with my Bible. You have slighted it. It lies in your houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Therefore, you shall no longer have my Bible. And he acted like he was carrying away their Bibles from them. And then he impersonated the people by falling down on his knees and crying out and pleading with God, Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us your Bible. Don't take away your Bible. And again, he impersonated God's response saying, well, I'll try you a while longer. Here's my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. And Goodwin said that the entire congregation was so moved, they were all sobbing uh, in tears, and that he himself was so overwhelmed with conviction that he hung on the neck of his horse for 15 minutes, weeping before he was able to get up on the horse and ride off after church. When's the last time you've sat in your car, right, weeping for 15 minutes before you could put the key in the ignition and drive away? And Packer summarizes this antidote. He says, this antidote takes us to the very heart of Puritanism. He said, the congregation's reaction shows that Rogers was touching their conscience at his most sensitive point. For Puritanism was, above all else, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that his world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live out, live it out and give it out 
to others. Intense veneration for scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. And my prayer is that that would be the hallmark of this church. And that would be the hallmark of all of our lives. That we would honor God by prizing his word and pouring over his word and living out his word and giving his word out to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to close by reading this, the conclusion to this psalm by David. It's really a prayer that he prayed in response to the wonderful word that he was exposed to on a daily basis. Who can discern his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, that is our prayer. We thank you that you are our rock and our redeemer. And it is our desire that all of our words, all of our thoughts, all of our motives, all of our actions, everything about us would be acceptable in your sight. And we know where to look to find out whether that's so, and that is in your word. And so may we live our lives based on what we read in your word so that you may be ultimately glorified May you use this message to cause us to prize you and your word more than ever. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.